Welcome back to Breaking the Law. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Uh, it, our approach is simple. Uh, the traditional approach to law is breaking people because the traditional law system and how it's approached is broken. And so it's time to take those next steps and to break free from that approach to the law. Um, today, we're going to take a deeper dive into how people are working to break the law to break away from that traditional approach. Uh, we're grateful to be joined again um, by two incredible guests, uh, Janet Thompson-Jackson and Danielle Hall. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I'm, Sam yeah. I'm Sam Foreman and uh, Ashlyn Linscog is our co-host today. Hello. Uh, Ashlyn, why don't you kick us off uh, with this conversation? I will, thank you. Um, I think this is so interesting and I'm so excited that we're going to chat a little bit about this um, because this is um, some things pulled from a letter published um, in the column in a column in the Washington Post last year and it's a letter um, about from someone who um, has made a decision a big decision in the practice of law and it says I recently resigned from my position as a partner at a law firm I killed myself to make partner, but once I made it, I began to realize it wasn't worth it. I'm so burned out that I'm not even looking for another position. I want to take the next six months or so to recover. My husband is ecstatic about my decision since he's seen what this job has been doing to me, but everyone else is questioning my decision. Even when I have made it clear their input is unwanted and unwelcome. I need a break. I've told people this, but they don't let up. They're making me feel like a complete failure when I say I'm simply going to take this time off. I'm simply taking this time off, um, which, you know, is, is probably most definitely not a unique experience for someone who uh, is going to make a call like this or make a choice like this. Um, other examples uh, that sort of show people making these kinds of decisions, um, the ABA Wellbeing Pledge um, just turned five, has over 200 um, signatories on it uh, to make progress in this, in the, the focus and the change, how we change things to focus on where lawyer well-being, um, the emergence of the wellness task force, um, lots and lots of stories of talented lawyers making the decision to leave big law behind. Um, and like we've talked about in e um, previous episodes, Sam, and to the extent you want to speak to this, um, what we mean, you know, when we say big law, the the sort of the more traditional approach, the historic approach to the the practice of law, right? Yeah, big law being those largest law firms, most of whom have adopted the traditional approach to the law that's creating, I think, a lot of the, the negative consequences that we're seeing in the industry. Um, but big law is also, I think, a, a great incubator for um, people to you know make changes that help break free from that approach. And I think we'll talk about that more um, as we get into the meat of the conversation today. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as as we kind of hear this story, you know, from this person who's chosen to leave big law. I mean, I, I read that. I think about, OK, this is somebody I mean, this to me is such a positive sign um, because here's a person who was stuck in um, 
uh, an environment that was killing them. You know, there was just taking them to a place of, it sounds like you know, they've got so much pressure. They had people closest to them um, uh, observing all the negative consequences from this particular uh, environment that they were in. Um, and they overcame all of those barriers to try to make that really difficult decision to kind of go do something else. Um, and I think that, uh, and we see this in a lot of different places where, you know, people are starting to leave. And I think that that's creating pressure on the industry, but I think it's also creating accountability mm-hmm. um, uh, towards change. And I think that that's reflected in um, what we see with some of these other trends of, you know, the, you know, the well-being pledge. We see a lot more um, reporting, a lot more uh, studies and research being done that's helping equip people with knowledge and understanding of what's going on. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious as we think about how people are breaking free from this, you know, from the traditional approach to law. I'm, I'm really curious what you know, Janet, what you and, and Danielle, what you're seeing, um, you know, in the industry as people are starting to really become more and more aware um, where the, the stigma is starting to come away from, you know, departing from this is the way it's always been done. Just curious what you yeah. all are seeing. Yeah. I, I think that there are a couple of different dimensions to that. People are starting to leave, and many of them are people who are able to leave and are privileged mm. to be able to leave. Um, I think that one of the things that we, that we haven't talked about is that one aspect of, uh, of stress and leading to burnout, but just daily chronic stress uh, is a lot of times greater for women, for people of color, um, and they don't always have choices to to leave, just to, to pick up and, and go to another environment. Um, and I don't know if all of the well-being supports that we're seeing, and I'm glad that we are seeing some, I don't know if they're addressing, if they're specifically addressing uh, these particular issues and supporting people who are people who who have kind of the highest levels, uh, added levels of stress beyond the practice of law. Mm-hmm. Um, the ceilings that don't quite give for mm-hmm. again for for women for people of color um, to to get to the top. So so there are all of these added dimensions. And I don't know if those are being addressed, but I do know that some people are leaving and some people have privilege to leave and some people don't. So some people can't just go and either start their own, own firm or decide to do something something different. So I, I know this is bringing another element into it, but I think that there is this inequity there when we talk about people being able to leave that we just really need to address. No, I think that's I think that's such an important observation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I agree with that as well, Janet. I, you know, I think on top of that, when it comes to some of the well-being initiatives and the things that we're seeing, like the ABA uh, employee well-being pledge, right? That's a step in the right direction. The work that we're doing at the Institute for Well-Being and Law, we want to give a cultural shift to things, to get things moving in the right direction as it relates to creating this culture and environment that uh, really embraces wellness for our lawyer and our legal staff population. But on the flip side of that, you know, some of the feedback that I get, particularly when I go out there and I speak or I, or I go to conference or I attend events, um, you know, there's only so much that we can do or we can talk about or that we can provide for what can you do on the individual level. And I think when we see these shifts in in culture of reactions, right, when people decide that's it, I'm done, I'm leaving, that's a call to action. And that's exactly the feedback that I'm getting as well, right? Like in that well-being space, they want to hear more discussion about these cultural issues, about things like the structure um, and nature of the way that laws practiced and what can we do there from a policy perspective and what can we be promoting as far as needs to happen in a shift or a change, whether that's at the firm level or at the legal department level, if it's a state agency. Um, So people are wanting that and we're getting more feedback about that. I also think that's being impacted, though, by the generation of recent graduates that we're seeing uh, from law schools. When I have conversations with them and they tell me what their expectations are when it comes from what they want out of their work environment, I can tell you they are much more vocal about it than what I was <laughs> when I graduated. I'm not going to say when that was, but it was a while ago. Um, and so these these recent grads, man, I look at I look at them and I'm like, wow, I wish I could have been more like that when I first graduated mm. law school and and make those requests and those demands to see a change, um, what they want out of their firm life or out of their legal work life. And so my hope is, is that we will see more of that. We'll see more of that demand, more of that request. So it empowers people like you discussed in this recent article um, to say, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm ready to go. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's a great segue. Both of those comments are great segues into this question about what do you think needs to happen to really break free, you know, beyond just people vocalizing, um, you know, what, what really needs to happen to help break away from this traditional approach to the law? You mean for the, for the actual firms or legal employers to, to, change their culture yeah open-ended question whether it's on an individual level whether it's at a firm level mm-hmm. yeah whether whether it's you know an organizational you know a legal organizational level mm-hmm. what, what kind of things do you hope to see that that you think will really um what kind of steps do you think will really help to break free from from the traditional approach yeah well first of all um i do think that it has to be a culture shift I think we need Mm. a culture shift. I think we need a culture shift starting in law school. And part of the problem is that um, we are starting to, at least some some schools are starting to, but we need to teach and train people people going through law school how to take care of themselves, how to cultivate empathy um, in their practice and in their lives. Uh, I think that, um, Ashlyn said it, it's not, 
we're, we don't learn how to, you know, we don't learn self-care in law school. We don't learn how to take care of ourselves. And it's not necessarily this intuitive thing that, oh, I'm, I'm going to care for myself first before I do this other stuff. I'm going to fit that in. It really has to be a part of how we move through spaces. And then if we started in law school, then you have a completely different attitude going into practice wherever you're choosing to practice your expectations are different your demands are different but then we also need to for all of the people who are not going to get that training in law school because they're already out and been out for years and years and years i think that we need to have uh training opportunities for exposure and awareness um in these different cultures and you know how is that done these, these are not quick fixes at all they're not quick fixes i think that there are some things that we can do on individual and even on cultural levels to ease some of the dysfunction but they're not quick fixes but i think that there has to be a willingness i actually do think that now there is much more of a willingness that's the real positive thing mm -hmm. as danielle said people are really saying okay I, i'm seeing this i want it i'm I'm noticing, and so we need to do something. But um, but it has to be a cultural shift, as well as an individual um, willingness to adapt these practices. Absolutely, and you know that shift really has to start from the top down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had conversations with firms who are doing some really great things as far as it relates to to well-being. There are some out there who are leaders in, in that particular area, but and we can definitely take a look at some of those examples to learn about some things that can be implemented. But implementing well-being policies will only go so far if they're not actually put into practice and if they're not supported um, by those who are in upper levels of management of the firm you know i talk to young lawyers quite a bit about kind of unspoken policies right we and we talked on the last episode about you know you have unlimited leave but yet mm -hmm. you can't use it mm -hmm. or the you know we're not required to come in on saturdays but everybody else comes in and it sure feels like we're required to be there on Saturdays mm -hmm. or, you know, the, the firm manager, they, they answer their, their emails at 11 o'clock at night. And so that must mean that that's what I need to do in order to be considered for leadership. And so I think continuing to have these discussions as to why it's important, why it can also impact the business of the practice of law, um, that there are benefits when you implement well-being policies and you actually put them to practice, um, how it can impact your workforce, how they can be more productive, how they can provide better client services, how you create a better work environment that increases collaboration. I mean, there's all these business cases that are out there. They've been written about, they've been researched. And so the research is there to back up the, the support of these particular types of policies, but we have to get buy-in from the top. Mm -hmm. And modeling, it's in more yes. buy-in and they have to model yep. the, 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 the wellness. They have to model it themselves and there are ways to do that. Yeah, it's, um, 
one of those things where your your wellness policy and program can't be performative. It can't be look at our beautiful wellness policy or look at our leave policy, kind of like you mentioned, Danielle. It's we ha- we have to see that type of behavior from the top down to feel safe to engage in it in a way um, that allows us to say, oh, okay, well, if the managing partner, you know, is is exhibiting this behavior, it truly is a, a norm here for us to engage in this type of work. And I think you're spot on that the generational shift is going to just create a shockwave through the industry because I have never felt more empowered than I'm when when I'm hanging out with like Gen Z who's like, I'm, I don't care how much extra money you're paying me. I am not coming in on a Saturday. And I'm like, Wait, yes, I love that. Like they just are the stigma around mental health is significantly reduced there. They just there there's no shame when they're taking a mental health day. They're like, absolutely not. I'm unavailable. Please do not call me. I'll see you next week. And they are better at setting those types of boundaries. And, you know, in terms of what what I think um, needs to happen is is probably not a very popular opinion. It won't be popular among the group of people I'm about to call out. But um, there's a generation of lawyer who wears misery, the misery of practicing law, like a badge of honor. It was, you know, I worked so hard and I gave my whole life to this place and I never, I never had dinner with my children and you all will, uh, you don't know what it's like to work hard. And it's like, you know, those are choices that you made in a lifetime uh, that you now live with. And I, I, I feel great for you about that. Um, but it's time to stop. It doesn't have to be punitive to choose to be a lawyer. It's not a, a badge of honor to be the guy who, you know, I've never went to my kid's soccer game on a Saturday morning. I mean, I've heard stuff like this, right? And it's like, well, good for you, but you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to do it. And I think we have to challenge a generation of lawyer um, who you know, said, well, it's hard for me, so it's gonna be hard. It should be hard for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be that way. What if, what if a managing partner sent an email getting ready to go on vacation? I'll be on vacation for the next week. And, um, you know, only people know to contact me only in an emergency. I will mm-hmm. not be checking my email. Mm-hmm. You know, what if the managing partner sent that email? Yeah. You know, or, or what if the managing partner said in a meeting, or, or whoever, whatever partner you're working for, oh, my kid has a soccer game this evening. We're going to end this on time. Mm-hmm. Little things like that. That's modeling. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything huge. It's modeling. Putting a, a tag under your name in your email saying, these are my you know, work. I, I'm, I'm not going to be available on Saturday. Saturday is my family day. I'm not going to be available on Saturday. Or... Or even if it is someone, I actually have a friend who loves to work during very strange hours. That's just what she does. And, um, but the email says, my work hours may not be your work hours. Please don't feel obligated to respond if this is not your work time. <laughs> I love that. Little yeah. things like that. You shamelessly right. steal that. Little mm-hmm. things like that make a big difference. This is how we change culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is how we change culture. Yep. Well, I love I love how much culture has come up here because I think it's the critical piece. Mm-hmm. I think if there's not culture change, then there's not behavior change. Um, and I know that the two kind of work in tandem. Um, one thing I'm really curious about is, do you see, as you see folks trying to change the way things are, are done and change the experience and improve wellness? You know, I hear a lot about, 
uh, and read a lot about people working on programs and making resources available, especially from a wellness perspective. And I think that those are a critical part of the solution. What I feel like I hear a lot less about is people changing their business models. And as I think about how do we get away from where we are and we get to a healthier place as an industry, I think about the competition between incentives. And we've got the incentives of our culture, you know, what we truly believe about ourselves and what we've truly decided to embrace. And that needs to change. And that is starting to change. And then where our economic incentives and realities are coming from. Um, and I struggle to see a sustainable long-term path forward without both of those components working together in tandem. Because I think ultimately the strongest incentives are the ones that are going to tell either culture or business model what to do at the end of the day. And I think for most folks, at least for some time into the future, business model is going to provide the biggest incentives. And so I, I'm really curious as you think about you know, how we change as an industry, do you see people working and understanding, or do you think my premise is completely off base, working to really understand, to really design the business model differently in a way that harmonizes with what we believe about what our culture should be and what we want it to be? Well, I think that Danielle was speaking to that really with the, um, with the business model that we have the proof, we have statistics, we have data that show that um, a business model that supports well-being actually can be a really successful business model. So I, I don't think that it is that there's this unknown. I think that generally, and maybe I'm simplifying it, but I think that people are so stuck in this is the way we've done it, that there's just this fear to move mm -hmm. out of that realm. Um, but I agree with you, Sam. I think that it has to be both. I think that your culture changes. I think that your changing the culture will change your business model. Changing your business model will change your culture. I think that mm -hmm. it, it has to go together. Um, and maybe, and I don't know, I don't know what comes first. <laughs> I don't know how you actually um, make that happen except for to jump in and make it happen. I also mm -hmm. don't think that you have to make all of these changes at once. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do um, you can do little things that help change the culture little by little. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'll, I'll add to that, you know, this, um, this connection between the business model and culture and well-being um, is something that really resonates with me. Um, oftentimes when I am talking with lawyers who are trying to figure out, you know, what do I do, you know, now that maybe I've gone to a clinician, I've worked through my burnout, what can I do so I don't get here the next time around? And traditionally, that's when I start talking with individuals about, okay, well, what does your daily practice look like? What are you doing from even a law practice management perspective? How are you managing the business? Because um, that can most significantly impact 
your workload? Are you working efficiently? Um, are you making things harder rather than working smarter? Um, and so I, I do think that there is some arguments to be had that changing structures all the way down to just the daily practice itself can be extremely beneficial in creating this environment that'll be positively impact. And it creates an environment that does support well-being policies and practices. But I do think that there are firms out there that are breaking the mold, that are stepping away, that are taking a look at, okay, I want to do things differently. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'm involved a lot in, in ABA LP division. So, you know, sometimes when I go out there and I talk with firms who are maybe operating in a more traditional matter and, you know, you start um, mentioning things like, you know, don't, you know, maybe look at doing something different than the billable hour. Right. And this is stuff that I hear all of the time because of my colleagues and, and who I, who I associate myself with. And so when I get the response back, like, what are you talking about? Or even unbundled legal services. Like, so, mm -hmm. I mean, there's all these different other models models that are out there mm -hmm. that I think maybe if we provided even more education to lawyers about why it is beneficial, I go back to that business case aspect. Mm -hmm. I always come back to that because I feel like if you want to convince people and you want to convince the top down, really looking at the business case and the business model and showing what you can create when you start talking about being innovative and changing and breaking the mold, I think can be a positive sway uh, to maybe start making that culture shift. No, and, I and think you know, it's there's, there's, no, go I ahead. There's, there's one more thing. Just like um, I think that clients actually have some power here, too. Mm -hmm. And I do think that if um, just like clients said, I'm not going to keep you unless I see diversity. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Unless I see some diversity, then I'm going someplace else. What if what if clients started saying, you know what, um, unless I see some, some kind of balance, some, then maybe they won't because maybe the clients aren't doing it, you know, but <laughs> maybe if there was some yeah. external pressure, maybe it's mm -hmm. not the client. I mean, I think that the ABA is putting some, the pressure that they can, um, maybe bar associations, but maybe bar associations can do more. Maybe there can be some external incentive instead of pressure incentive to make some changes um and i i want to come back to i especially think this has to happen um in legal services in government as well but in legal services uh where people feel that they have no choice mm -hmm. and what i find is that in those environments those are some of the environments where the leadership is the least aware um and the least prepared and equipped to change the culture. They don't always even feel in control because there's some board someplace that is mm -hmm. a little bit removed, um, sometimes removed, sometimes involved, but um, but there are different levels. So so I think that how we approach law, large law, big law, and how we approach uh, smaller law firms and how we approach legal aid and government, there it's not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. But I think that we do have to look at what external incentives can we um, think of that will help to encourage people to make some changes. 
I I wonder to the to the point that we've talked about what what role you know I like how we're talking about who has to own this who who has to take responsibility for this um, and you know circling back to law schools having to take ownership of making this shift and I often wonder why you know we go out into the world as lawyers and we're trained on as many things as we can be. Um, but not the business side of our business. Not what it doesn't have to be the billable hour. But but we aren't trained on how to combat or challenge the old idea, right? So it was it took me years and years and years of practicing law before I looked at a billing memo and I was like, wait, this is not efficient for me or for them. This is a flat fee kind of scenario where everybody will benefit. And if we were talking about these alternative billing solutions or these unbundling of legal services and really talking to law students who are getting ready to build their careers, we just give them the ability, even if they're going into a very traditional law firm, to be able to advocate for doing things differently because they have some skill set or some knowledge base to glean from other than, because what my fear is is that in the traditional practice, what what when we say um, this this way isn't working, what the, what people hear who are you know traditionalists here, well, you just don't want to work very hard. It's like, well, no, mm-hmm. that's not true. And so, and I think um, it's just you know another thing about how do we how do we learn how to be good business advocates for ourselves? We're like little mini businesses all over the place, and uh, we should learn how to how our the business side of of what it is that we do. I think would would certainly help. What do you think? I think that's great. Yeah, totally. And yeah. I think there is like law practice management and things like that, but but not from the perspective that you're talking about. It's, I think that law practice management is how do you kind of assimilate into the system that's already there. You're really advocating for learning a different system, um, even from the one that you may be going into uh, right. or challenging that. And I, I think that's a great idea. I yeah. just remember. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Daniel. Sorry. Yeah. You know, and there are some law schools that are doing this, you know, who comes to mind immediately is Suffolk. Uh, they have a okay. huge program of legal innovation and technology and law practice mm-hmm. management, so much so that, you know, I, I've looked at some of the things that they do uh, for my own course that I, that I teach here for our law school on law practice management. So, where, you know, breaking that traditional mold and implementing some of this uh, within those courses, I think, is instrumental um, in educating the next generation on how to break the law and do things differently. Yeah. No, I'm I think thrilled to hear you're you're doing that. Danielle. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. No, that's that's wonderful. And I, I think some for me, some of what it comes back to and to just kind of summarize some of the things that we've talked about is it starts with um it starts with people's expectations. It starts with their comfort level making individual decisions. And it starts as early in the process as possible. Um, it should start in law schools with programs like what you described, um, whether it's just taking care of themselves, but also understanding how the business works. I think so much of, um, I mean, to uh, put it put it this way, you know, one of our core values as a law firm is uh, is margin. We want to create and protect space for what matters most. And I think so much of the law school experience and the early law practice experience is focused on squeezing as much margin as possible out. 
And so people go into an environment not knowing what's going on, not understanding how it works, not understanding what the options are, not really understanding what sort of control or power they have in the situation. You know, believing that the power dynamics are completely, you know, tilted towards the law firm rather than understanding what sort of influence they can exert um, into the situation. And then they get the results that you'd kind of expect, which is somebody who believes that they have no ability to influence things, doesn't understand how things work um, or even how to have a thoughtful intervention in that scenario. And then things just continue, you know, the way they've always been. Um because people believe that that's the only thing there is. And I think that the sooner we can influence people to understand, here's how things could be different. Here's how it does work. Here's how you can make those changes. I think the sooner in their careers, they're going to feel the comfort level to raise that voice. Um, well, and to Janet's point, um, you know, it's through modeling. We make mm. that, we give people courage uh, to, to go into that space or take positions um, through through modeling, doing it ourselves, and 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 taking risks, and and really trying to challenge or disrupt the status quo, um, you know, doing things like this, having conversations like this, but more um, reach our reach. How can we reach and communicate this? Mm-hmm. These things that we're communicating um, to more people to to pour courage into them, um, for sure. What are some keys to overcoming the obstacles uh, that we've identified here? Do you guys have thoughts um, about, you know, we've identified this is where we think this needs to start. These are the types of things um, that we may be experiencing, both from a culture uh, and a business model perspective. Do you, um, either of you um, or Sam, will also allow you to give us opinions here too, maybe, um, about what are some keys to overcoming those obstacles, uh, breaking free from the traditional approach to law? What do we got to, how do we get our hands dirty here? What do you think, Danielle? You're nodding and smiling, so I know you have thoughts. <laughs> I do have thoughts. And I'm probably going to, uh, yeah, I'm going to say, okay, I, I kind of want to couple this with your last question about, uh, you know, who has a role to play yeah. in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and being a former regulator myself, I feel like that's one stakeholder who has a role to play in this. Uh, we often talk from the ethical perspective when we get advisory opinions on whether or not we can do something it traditionally kind of impacts us i would say in a negative way um you know don't do this don't do that don't do this but i think there's also a duty on behalf of regulators to also tell us how can we do it um in which ways can we do some of these non-traditional legal practices um, by still abiding by our rules of professional conduct and ensuring that our clients come first and that we are meeting the needs of our clients, but helping lawyers navigate that aspect of it. Uh, You know, one thing that comes to my mind immediately is, you know, things like our rule on technology, for instance, right? We're told Mm -hmm. we need to be competent in our use of technology. Oftentimes what we see coming out from the regulatory perspective is, you know, don't do this because of this rule. And what I would like to see more of and what, you know, I, I try to assist lawyers with understanding is, okay, well, here are the bounds within the rules. Yes, here are the things that you can't do, but here are the things you should do, right? The rule says we should be competent in our use of technology. So if we're going to use it, we should know how to use it appropriately. And here's how you can do it. I think the same should apply 
apply to these non-traditional legal practices that we are often seeking advice about how to go about doing. Um, so that, that's one, I think, key area. The other key stakeholder may be malpractice insurance providers, helping lawyers navigate that non-traditional way of practicing law should lawyers have questions about, you know, how is this going to impact me in this regard uh, as it relates to my malpractice insurance? You know, I, the Institute for Wellbeing and Law and the National Task Force Report talk a lot about stakeholders. And there are so many stakeholders within the legal profession that I think play a large role um, beyond the legal employers, beyond the law school, including judges and the courts um, can also play a huge impact in this in essentially letting lawyers know that it's okay to break the mold, um, I think would be extremely beneficial in giving somebody the push to maybe look at things differently. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Oh, those are great. Yeah. I what about totally agree. And I I was going to say that the regulation, I actually hadn't thought of the uh, malpractice insurance, but I think that the, the through regulation, that's so important. So for instance, um, the ABA has changed their, um, a couple of their, uh, I'm losing the word, it's not a rule, it's not a comment, it's a, um, I'm losing the, the term that I should be using for it, but they have changed it regarding well-being and uh, professional identity formation. And they've, they now are requiring um, law schools to show how they are providing, for instance, well-being resources, how they are helping students to develop a healthy professional identity formation. We can do the same thing through the rules of professional conduct. What if in the in the um, competence uh, rule or other rules, what if there was a well-being component that was baked into that mm -hmm. so that when you interpret what does it mean to be a competent lawyer, it actually means some aspect of taking care of yourself or creating a culture of well-being or some support in some way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm that I think people will respond to. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, and, I, and I was really curious if you've seen any, if either of you have seen any states that have started to require any kind of, uh, you know, wellness credit, for example, similar to how an ethics credit is required. And ethics credit, yeah. multiple ethics credits. Just one, half a credit. <laughs> Yes, actually, there are several states who have gone and mandated, uh, required uh, well-being CLE as part of their yearly requirements. And there are also several other states who have um, approved special accreditation, you know, so it doesn't always have to be ethics credit. They actually have a well-being accreditation uh, component mm. available within their CLE regulations. Uh, so we, we're seeing some movement in that regard, but I think that we're also seeing pushback. Uh, you know, the the argument as to why do we just need to tack on another hour um, are, I'm fine, I don't need this. You know, we're seeing the same type of pushback as it relates to uh, mandating uh, DEIB uh, CLE as well. So I, I think that there is a little bit of a struggle there for those states who are looking to implement this with getting the lawyer population to also come on board for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
I often wonder if part of that, too, and Sam has heard me go on about this, uh, so he won't be surprised, but, you know, on the regulator side and on the malpractice side is, is yes, so much of don't do this, don't do this, you know, this is a problem, this is a problem, how empowering it would be for lawyers to feel like it is also we we have your back and if you're taking care of yourself and doing the right things, we don't want you to lose your license. We don't want you to to be in front of us on these issues that have spiraled out of control uh, because we creating some kind of advocate in that space for lawyers because it often feels like, you know, it's like, I don't want, I don't even want to hypothetically let them know this could be going on or, or <laughs> seek advice on this because I don't want to get on anybody's radar. Um, and it's, it's, you know, sort of looking for that level of advocacy or support to say, no, we, we, here's the direction. This is what we want you doing. Not just don't do any of these things. They're all bad. Um, I think that's such a, such a good point. I, I have a couple thoughts on this on this item, um, just from some personal experience. I think one of the observations I come back to is the power of the individual. And I think that there's such an important role in, in moving the industry forward from all of these different stakeholder groups. But I think the one that people frequently get stuck on, um, particularly in private firms, is the power of the individual. Um, the... Um, one of the particular instances that comes to my mind is a conversation I had several years ago with a, uh, you know, someone I consider to be a peer. And we had very, very similar thoughts about um, what was broken about the law and where it needed to go and where the pain points are and what needed to happen. And um, I went my direction, started my firm. Yeah, we have, I think, a really good model in terms of culture and business. And we'll talk about that on future episodes, I'm sure, in more detail. But as best as I can tell, um, he's become part of the ship. And I think that there's a lot of younger attorneys early career that get into those positions where they feel all the pain points as they're starting to climb the hill. And then they get to a point where they're making enough money and they have enough authority and they think, oh, I'll just do this as soon as I have a power or I'll just do this as soon as I'm on the managing committee or something like that. And then in the process, they get busier and they start to make more money. And I think what happens is that a lot of these people start to become numb or they start to think that, oh, this is how it's supposed to be or this isn't that bad or this is actually the best that there is and the best that there can be, or this will be my generational change will be this small piece instead of being willing to, you know, take some harder positions, make some harder changes perhaps along the way. And I'm not going to share this person's name because I don't know the full story. I'm just kind of observing from the outside, but there's lots of other examples I can think of of people who've had, similar progressions along their career where I feel like they've expressed all of these similar things, but I don't see them changing either their personal experience or changing their firms in those ways. And I think that where I feel like really hard work needs to happen to change and to break the law is that people have to really be honest with themselves about what they want and really decide this is what I really want. Um, and then they have to decide to act on it. And I think for a lot of us as attorneys, it means deciding what do I want more than money and what do I want more than image? Because I think that those are two hangups that really, really drive the um, lack of movement for a lot of attorneys in private practice is 
where am I going to make this kind of money? Or I've designed my lifestyle in a way that I can't afford to go do something else, or I've not put myself in a position or other people haven't created opportunities for me to be in a position where I have clients that might follow me, where I would even have the opportunity to leave or do something else. Um, or I can't get over the barriers of what are people going to think about me? You know, they're going to think I washed out, I burned out, I couldn't cut it, I couldn't hack it, couldn't hang, right? Mm-hmm. Is, that what, is that what the kids are saying these days? Mm-hmm. But Good job. Um, I think that's... I think that's a critical item that that people have to be willing to do. And I realize that that's really, really hard um, for a lot of folks. I don't want to minimize anybody's situation. I don't want to discount their experience or where they're at. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves about the choices that we're making. I know I made the wrong choices for a long time and, you know, trying to make better ones today. So, Mm -hmm. but that's my thoughts on that one. Yeah, I, I think that that really very accurately assesses the the challenge, the big challenges that are there. And I think that it goes back to what Danielle said, that it has to start at the top. Yep. It has to, if, I think that it is much easier for people to make these decisions and to make decisions that support their well-being if they see people who they're looking up to, mm-hmm. you know, who, who they're reporting to and who they're looking up to making those types of decisions. And, you know, sometimes culture changes one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not that there are some policy that's changed. Sometimes behaviors one at a time after another then shift and then the policy changes or you know the way we do things change but um yeah when i hear you you talking it's like you have to have an ally mm-hmm. you have to have support right. to be able to make those decisions yeah it it you know it can be so hard even in a situation where you do gain some power or some capital i think you have to have capital to make changes especially in our system um and without an ally without someone that says yes we're all in and let's make these changes that you want to see it's you know how many you run into a brick wall so many times you're like well I've done all I can do. I have given all I can give. And uh, now I got to look out for numero uno. So it's that institutional change is so hard that I think you're spot on that it even trying to fix the burnout causes burnout. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I want to fix the burnout. And I'm frankly, very burnt out by it. I can't I can't see the results of my labor. And, um, you know, it can be exhausting. So it's it's for sure a multi-level complex problem that I agree has to start at the top, top down, like most things. I've got a question that has bugged me for a long time, and I'm really curious what other people think. Because I feel like I have a tendency to be, A, I've convinced myself I'm right on everything. And if if you have doubts about that, I'd be happy to talk to you more about literally anything. Um, but I, I'm convinced that there's a moral component to this that law firm leaders either don't see as being a moral decision or they're just fundamentally convinced that what they're doing is morally right. 
and I struggle with that because I don't see how someone could look at the problems that are being created and have access to the information that we have access to and convince themselves that things are the way they should be. And so I, I feel like there's a moral um, component to the decisions that law firm leaders make to permit and sometimes to perpetuate the status quo that I think I'll give them all the benefit of the doubt that I think that they're probably asleep to. Um, but, but I'm curious if, um, for, for all three of you, if that's something where you feel like this is truly, is it truly a moral decision? Does it truly have that heavy moral component to it? And if you believe that it does, do you think that law firm leadership is awake to that? understanding or do you think that it's just i'm running a business i'm here to be accountable to the other partners and they don't view it as something that has a moral aspect to it so that that's my question is it a moral thing and and are people awake to that in firm leadership and that's all the time we have for today (laughs) (laughs) you know what when when you were talking you could have been talking about diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. yeah. and what we now call, you know, DEIB. Mm-hmm. You could have been talking about that same thing. You could put, you could mm. exchange well-being for that. And I think that it's the same situation. Um, and it's not even a different issue. It's a related issue because that's the belonging. Belonging is the mm. well-being part mm-hmm. of it, right? And so I think that changes started to happen when places were forced to make changes maybe some made voluntary changes but there was pressure to Mm -hmm. make changes there was pressure to create diversity and then there was pressure to do more than just create diversity and say somebody was included there's now Mm -hmm. pressure to actually create a sense of belonging in 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 where you are and so i think it's the same thing is there a moral component to it um i personally think there is yes i think there is um i'm not sure that that is a shared belief and i'm not sure that that is even enough for people to make a change in my life i have not seen that that has been enough um of a reason for people but i think that other pressures if there are enough internal and external pressures then that's when we see change made just like we did with dei just like Mm -hmm. just like we saw there um but i think that uh well-being is even squishier than dei in terms of what does that mean and how does that translate into something that is going to be workable for my workplace. And a lot of people don't believe in the business case for it. Don't believe that there's actually a business case, even Mm -hmm. though there clearly is. So moral component, yes, but I don't know if that moves the needle. 
I think those are all great points, Janet. You know, I'll say looking at this in the reverse is that the firms who are out there who are leading the pack, who have signed the well-being pledge, um, who are outwardly talking and not just talking, but also putting into place action as it relates to instituting new culture and creating well-being policies that are truly followed. I would say that they have been vocal about the fact of recognizing both the business case and the moral aspect of it. But I do agree with Janet that external and internal pressure can go a long way in, in making those changes mm-hmm. um, on top of just speaking about um, each of those particular cases and how they can impact the firm. No, that's great. Ashlyn, thoughts? Yes, so many thoughts. Um, One thing that I think about a lot um, is that I don't know anyone better rationalizing their own behavior than lawyers. So um, they... We are all, me included, um, good at making what we do make sense and and advocating for why we do what we do. And I think, yes, the answer to your first question is a morality issue, but I think a lot of law firm leaders have rationalized their own experience from start to finish and said, this was my experience and I survived it and look and and look at me now. It, it's mm-hmm. totally survivable. Um, and so it there is no harm. The other thing I've heard a lot in this work in this space um, and you know even in the DEIB space is when did everyone get so sensitive? When did it I mean we've been practicing law this way for so many years. Mm-hmm. Why now? Why all of a sudden? Why do we have to focus on these things? Why can't we just go back to working and, and practicing law? And I think um, it's just whether or not the morality of it is staring them in the face, it is they rationalize it or or come up with a solution that is the problem is not me. It is not the way that I do things. Mm-hmm. It isn't this new generation of lawyer. It is this new era of that we've entered where everything has to be done a certain way or or what political correctness or all of the things they rationalize and blame for the needing to move the needle. So, um, yeah, I think there's for sure some work to be done. I think it has to. Uh, we have to figure out their pain points, those who are in leadership, figure out what will move the needle with them, even because the things that will move the needle for us are not going to be effective long term. Does that make sense? Like the morality of it, yes, it's the right thing to do, but for them, it's their pocketbook or or whatever is going to really move the needle for them. I have a question, Sam. Am I allowed to ask a question? Oh, absolutely. So my question is, I do think we have a new generation of lawyers going into practice that are making demands and um, that, that, you know, we didn't necessarily make and have expectations that are very different. Are they staying? Because if they become Mm -hmm. leadership, then maybe we will see changes, wholesale changes across the board, not just, you know, a few firms, but a lot. Um, Are they staying or are they dropping out and doing something else because they're discouraged. I don't know the statistics on that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have a couple of scattered data points on that. Um, I talked to a friend at a uh, AM100 firm recently, and uh, he was describing the pride that their firm had over their retention rate for associates, uh, and their annual turnover rate was roughly one in five. 
And so I think when you extrapolate that over the course of an associate's career, you see a lot of people moving around. And I don't know how many of those are staying in big law or traditional law or how many are dropping out altogether. Um, I saw a uh, survey just recently, I think it was on Above the Law, that roughly one in four um, uh, associate attorneys are, are planning to leave. Um, and you look at the um, number of certain categories of attorneys, particularly uh, women and minority attorneys who would take something that had better flexibility or better maximize their priorities. And it's exceptionally high. It's like, just put it in front of me and I'll take it. Um, and so um, yeah. I think that there's a very low sense of um, desire to stay, but that, but that's just one related data point. Um, what I feel like I see is that those that stay become part of where they are. Um, and I think that that's a cultural component of people become absorbed by the place that they are. They, they change it, they have an impact on it, but particularly with the size and the strength of a culture in a law firm, what at least my observation is for, for my peer set is that those that I see staying, even those that have gotten into leadership, um, they've placed their, maybe their fingerprint on it, but now it's one fingerprint among a hundred. Right. And so the change that they're making, I think they are becoming more changed than they are changing. Mm. And so I think that they are more likely becoming assimilated. Now, not that that won't reach a breaking point at some point. We've got this whole silver wave of there's all the, you know, folks that climbed up, you know, the hill in the snow both ways to get to where they are right now. Um, they're the king of workaholic mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, uh, so maybe somebody will want to displace them from that, but maybe somebody won't. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm really curious to see what, what that dynamic will look like. But, but that's my impression is that the folks that I'm observing that stay are having some impact, but they're being more impacted than they are impacting. Yeah. That, that's just my observation from the outside. So um, I had two, two real quick thoughts to, to wrap up this topic. One is, I, I think to your point, Janet, of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, uh, and wellness, I think all of these are symptoms of what's broken, um, all of the pain points, and it's all part of the, the larger conversation, um, that these are things that are coming out of an unhealthy system. It's a symptom. The, the system is, is what's being broken, is what's the root. Um, at least that's that's how I see it. And so I want to acknowledge that. And I hope that we'll get into a lot more detail on these topics and especially how they relate to each other um, in coming episodes, um, because I think it's such an important topic. Um, and I come from a very, very uh, conservative libertarian background. Spoiler alert for anyone who didn't pick up on that. <laughs> but to me, it's so fundamental. Um, our decisions about how we choose to treat each other and how we choose to respect ourselves is so much at the core of the experience that we create um, for our families, for our staff, for the other attorneys that we work with. And for my part, at least, and this is part of why I care about this topic so much, <laughs> there's such a heavy moral component to it and we make it every single day. Um, and we're accountable for that and we're responsible for that. And so it's just time to be better humans. Um, so that's all I'm going to say. If anyone would like a uh, heavily used soapbox, I have one that is available for sale. It's $2.47 on, on this, eBay. Well, I, I love the, it's time to be better humans. That's yeah. the best sentence. That's the best line right there. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate it. Um, 
Ashlyn, you want to close us out? Yes. Um, like we do, um, when we close out every episode, we like to share a couple of key points, practical tips or challenges, try to keep the work, the thought, the hope moving um, as we move through this journey. And so um, I would ask you all to share um, one that you've thought of that it might have come up um, as we've chatted about this topic today. So Janet, what about you? What do you think? What's what's something that might be helpful? Helpful, uh, to share with those that are listening or watching or both? You know, so this is an exercise that's not necessarily quick, but I think that it's really useful for people to revisit what their core values are because mm-hmm. those may change over time as we grow and as we mature and as we as our life looks different. But do, doing an evaluation of what are my core values and Am I living my life in alignment with that? Are my, you know, yeah. is my work, are my actions, are my behaviors, are even my thoughts in alignment with who I say I am? And I think that if we just take the time periodically to do this assessment, um, it might inform uh, how we show up mm-hmm. and um, and how we contribute and how we speak out. Yeah. Totally. Um, Danielle, what about you? What are you thinking? Yeah, you know, the one thing that comes to my mind is for those individuals who have maybe done that assessment and said, you know, I think I want something new that fits with my core values and and aligns with me and the lawyer I want to be and the type of law I want to practice. You know, there are resources available out there for you if you are looking for non-traditional models or a new way of doing business. Um, You know, immediately what comes to my mind are things like the ABA Law Practice Division. There are resources that are readily available on the front end of the website that can be extremely helpful when you're first doing your research. And then I would say, look in your state as to whether or not there is somebody in your state that's called a practice management advisors. Um, Many of the state bar associations have law office management assistance program. And I'm going to, uh, you know, sing my praises of those people because they are out there leading the way and doing the research on the front end and having resources ready available to help lawyers transition into new types of practice. So whether that's leaving big law to opening your own firm or even looking at, you know, just doing something a little bit different, those people are there in the States and they can assist you. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's so important because I had no idea that that was even available to me. So uh, I took a note. Thank you. Um, Mine for the close today is um, to really challenge everyone who's listening to recognize where their power is, uh, where their privilege is, to be Hmm. able to make a change, um, to, to, to do something to, to make these changes that we've been talking about. And not everyone has the same power. Not everyone has the same privilege to exert, you know, um, to make huge waves or big in fact, impactful changes. But um, people are watching and, and people are watching you. And, and you may, you know, just by acknowledging the the burnout or the mental health struggle at work in the, in the lunchroom, saying, man, it's just been really tough around here. You may be creating freedom for someone else to say, someone has finally said it. Someone has finally acknowledged that this is hard. And I feel safe in saying, yeah, I I think it might be good to bring someone in to talk about that or just um, recognize the power you have to make really powerful changes, even in in spaces that feel small to you. Because I think if everyone could just identify 
what impact they could have, and then really leaned into it, uh, we might see some some pretty incredible progress. I think that's great. Um, I, I think my thought for folks would be to remember that you have influence, and regardless of what level you're at, um, but especially those who have authority and influence, uh, to be encouraged by the thought that you're doing it wrong, and that's all right. <laughs> um, don't be afraid to make a mistake. I think for a lot of people who recognize the issue, who see um, the opportunity to do things better, there's a paralysis of, I'm going to do it wrong. Like, I'm going to go be vulnerable. I'm going to go tell my team that, hey, I struggled with this. And then I'm going to be, I'm going to do it wrong and I'm going to fail. Um, and just to remember that you're going to do it wrong and that's all right. Um, but the important part is for you to learn and to model and to take those next steps. There's all kinds of resources to help. Um, but I really want to encourage people to take that next step and don't be afraid to make a mistake in the process. Um, because the worst um, action sometimes is inaction. Um, and, uh, you've got so much to offer. You're stronger than, you know, your team needs you. Um, and sometimes the people that you need to model for aren't even on your team. Um, they just need some encouragement somewhere else. Um, so, uh, thank you everyone. Uh, thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Janet, for joining us for these conversations. Really appreciate all the work that you're doing. Um, you're having such a tremendous impact for people. Um, the world needs great lawyers, um, and great lawyers need, um, all kinds of great resources. And thank you for being great lawyers. Thank you for being great humans. Um, thank you everyone for joining us on today's episode as we talked in more depth about how we take those next steps and how we break free from the traditional approach to the law. Um, please continue to join us on this journey. We've got a lot of topics to cover ahead um, and we're excited, we're excited to be part of this journey with you.